לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. In Parshat Tetzaveh this week, Parshat Tetzaveh starts, we're going we're gonna to start with, with the opening, okay? And then we're going to go to, I'm, I'm going to use the two of you as my therapists here, okay, for this for this Parsha. Are you going to pay us? I can, yeah, I'll give you a cup of coffee, okay. But, <laughs> all right, V'chut Tetzaveh B'nai Yisrael, you shall command B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, take the, the beaten olive oil, for using this as oil in order to light the ner tamid, the, the, the light that will be lit constantly, it will be in the tent of meaning, outside of the covering, the, the veiled covering, asher that's on the testimony. Aaron and his sons will light it. From evening to morning, before God, Allah for all generations, all right. So, so I want to start with, let's understand this, uh, you know, the, the different aspects of this mitzvah, the, the, you know, the components of it. And let's, let's take this, um, a, a little breath, and we'll we'll shuckle a little bit, and and daven it a little bit, and enjoy it a little bit to 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 see what it what it says. So I'm going to turn to you, Barry. You know, this commandment is you know in detail. What are we talking about here? So uh, uh, we have to have an image, I think, of the Ohel Moed. So the Ohel Moed consists of two rectangles. In the center of one rectangle is the altar of sacrifice where the olah and the other animals will be slaughtered and offered up to God. And that is in the chatzir, the courtyard, which is open air. And then in the other rectangle, there are two structures, the holy and the holy of holies. The holy is twice as big as the holy. And in the holy section, we find a menorah, a table, and the altar of incense. And it's a covered structure, and therefore the function of the menorah is to provide light. And that light has to be lit regularly. Every evening and every morning, the Kohanim have to tend to it so that they have light so they can see what they're doing. The Kodesh, on the other hand, is restricted juice. It's only 
available on Yom Kippur. When the high priest goes in, then there's a rabbinic dispute as to what kind of light source is provided for the Kohen Gadol, whether there's any, or he goes in in a cloud of smoke from incense so we won't see God. But that's a discussion for another day. You, you, you that, was super, that was super clear with the one exception is that you, you sometimes said Kodesh when you meant Kodesh Kodeshim. Isn't the Kodesh Kodeshim, is it not one, you said two structures, is it not one structure with a screen? Is the parochet a screen? That's what we're talking about, yes. Okay, you could look at it like that, but sometimes a curtain functions as a wall, so your point is a good one. But, but the dimensions have to be clear that the Kodesh HaKodeshim is half the size of the Kodesh. So, so when I ask about the, the parochet, then the screen, it if it's one room and the screen is it at the is it at the top of the thing or is it you know in other words, can the menorah in the Kodesh also illuminate over the screen into the Beit Kodesh HaKodeshim? I I don't believe so because my understanding is that. What we call a curtain is equivalent to a wall. Like you think of a social hall, those curtains that are in social halls can be used as dividers, and they go floor to ceiling. All the way to the top. Okay. Yeah. And it was a, the the parochet was adorned and with all sorts of you know, and it's thick skin. It's not a it's not a curtain like we think of in our house. Well, then was the kodesh kodeshim illuminated in any way in the inside the holy of holies where the ark? Well, so the question is, you have to open the curtain in order to get in. So presumably whatever light had been in the Kodesh would illuminate the Kodesh HaKodeshim. I mean, that's how I understand it. So I understand it. All right. So so from, from this, we get the expression ner tamid. And that already, you know, uh, filters through to Judaism and that becomes the ner tamid of the synagogue. So people will recognize the the this phrase ner tamid, and they'll they'll be able to identify it as the the lantern or the the illuminating uh, you know the light um, at the front of a synagogue, usually suspended by some kind of chain. I mean, in my synagogue beautiful ner tamid, the nice glass bowl that's suspended from the ceiling, and it's and it's constantly illuminated and and you get the sense you know that that is a religious symbol that's and that's different though it is different and it's worth thinking about the imagery because the neurotamid in the synagogue is always in front of the ark yeah the ark in the synagogue contains our torah whereas the ark in the mishkan and in the temple may have had the tablets in it but i think as martin buber stresses was originally supposed to be an empty box but that is our experience of the divine is somehow in our approach and attitude to the ark and what we have in our synagogue is a complete transformation of symbols taken from the mishkan and the oha Moed. they mean things very differently to us than i think we can appropriately imagine they meant for our ancestors right but just to think for a moment we think of the Nir Tamid as a singular object, when in fact, I think the correct symbolism is it's supposed to illuminate the ark for us in the synagogue. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to shed God. We were talking earlier about God's light. This is God's light. Well, let's you talk about with the, the Torah. The, uh, the, just two, two slightly random thoughts about this. One is that... Uh, 
for the synagogue until Thomas Edison, <laughs> they had a different set of problems, right? <laughs> and and so the the thought that the synagogue would always be, you know, the lights were always on in the synagogue is quite beautiful. If you can imagine, you know, wherever you are, you know, you're in you're in, you know, Hungary in 1674 or something like that, or you're in Morocco. Um, you know, we make sure that whenever you come to the synagogue, it's a place of luminosity. The second thing I was going to say was I was just reminded as you were talking about like what is the illumination inside the Beit Kodesh Kodashim, the Holy of Holies, the the uh, external menorah is not going to get there. So in the Haftarah, for, we're recording this on Sunday morning, yesterday was Truman, we read the Haftarah, and that's about Solomon's temple, and it's that he makes for the, the house, the bite, where it's clearly not, it's clearly a big structure, a permanent structure, not not the uh, portable tabernacle. He makes it, Chalonei Shekufim Atumim, which is a sort of a paradoxical term. I, th I think the translation gives it recessed and latticed or, or something like that. But if you just read the words, windows which were transparent and closed. And the, you know, Midrash way of reading it is that in an ancient building, you know, you the uh, the windows were, uh, what is this? Like they, they were angled so that they brought all the light in and then brought it to the room. But in the Beit HaMikdash, it was the other way. The light source was in the Beit HaMikdash and the, and the windows extended nice. out of the world to illuminate the rest of the world thanks to the thanks to the holy place. So you, you do get some vibe that that the light is is the divine presence and the light is the Torah. Uh, I also love what you said about the empty box, especially in the Beit Sheni, in the rebuilt temple. There's nothing there, but it's still, you know, sacred. Well, okay, so let's go for a second on on the idea that that God loves to illuminate the the world. This is uh, based on a midrash in Shemot Rabbah, you know, where where there's a, a list, or it starts out with saying God loves has desire ta'ava nitava. For four things, one of them is lisbol, which is a kind of to to be burdened by the world, lishmor et olamo, to to keep the world or to guard the world, and then it's lahir et olamo, to to illuminate the world, and it only lists three, but but you know through careful examination of parallel texts, there's huzan et olamo, he feeds the world. Okay, so let's just focus on the idea that God loves to illuminate the world and that where the midrash goes with this is that god loves to illuminate the world and so here he gives israel a commandment to illuminate the mishkan or to illuminate that area in the mishkan as a way of imitation um but but uh, talk about you know the idea of light and the idea of god illuminating and what what gives us you know this kind of spiritual pleasure in this Barry, or so there's a fascinating controversy from the Middle Ages when the text of the Sidur was more permanently fixed. So the phrase that we have in the first blessing before the Shema is Or Hadash al that God should grant a new light on Zion. And the reason why it was controversial is because the Brachas cast, the blessing is cast as God is the creator of light. And now we have this invocation of a new light, which suggests the messianic period. And not all the rabbis were comfortable including it, although anyone who's used the Sidur for the last thousand years or so will recognize that the change was uh, has become permanent. Among but, us, 
Excuse me? Malas Ashkenazim. Yeah, of course. In the Mizrahi Sidurim, it's the other way. Okay. I, I appreciate that. Um, but we have to think a little bit about light. Light is a powerful force in and of itself, but it also stands for creation as a whole. So when we invoke God as the bringer of light, we're reminded not only of the first day of creation, but of creation, however we understand it, including today, the world that we live in. And the idea is that God's light is permanent, even though we may not always see it. And our task is to discover, to illuminate our lives with God's light. In the spirituality of Jewish worship, and and I mean, last week we talked about you know, put a mishkan, make yourself a mishkan in your heart, and I had difficulty with that. But, but I don't, I don't necessarily have the same amount of difficulty with the, the meditative aspect of 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 thinking about light. And and you know, if if you take a little class in meditation or or you read any of the literature on, I mean, Arya Kaplan on Jewish meditation, that's where I, I read it, and he talks about. I think he talks about this. <laughs> He should have if he didn't. <laughs> yeah, imagine imagine a point of light. You know, so can you hold that 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 image in your mind? You know, for a second, and and that's a you know a meditative exercise. Um, he also talks about you know the 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 repeating of words, mayim eish shalom. You know, these are different kinds of of mantra uh, meditations. I'm wondering. You know, not that if you had any experience of this, but but what what the meditation on light and what the idea? I mean, I don't have a problem. I have a problem putting a putting a, a mishkan in my in my heart. Okay, but I don't have a problem putting light in there. I don't. Know. I, I don't. I don't <laughs> this is the therapy part. I don't. I don't. I don't, under, I don't understand the, the first part of the problem, but the second the second part is is you know rich, right? Like. Yeah. Um, Meditations, you know, I'm thinking of a number of you know medieval Kabbalistic texts that are about that are about looking at uh, light, both imagining light. There's also a meditation in the Zohar that you're supposed to look at a candle, a burning candle, and the different colors of the flame, like the the blue flame, and then the the whiter, and then the yellow hue around the the, the yellow aura around are they supposed to represent the sephirotic system you know the different the different aspects of the divine as opposed and, to oxygen and carbon <laughs> yeah it's more poetic this way and uh, but also the the um and maybe we'll we can get to it now we can get to it a little bit later but um you know the the hebrew word uh or light spelled olive vibration the hebrew word or with the iron, iron vavresh, his skin, and the, you know, Adam and Eve, God makes them when they leave the, the garden, kutnot or, with an iron, makes them coats of skin to wear because they're leaving the innocence of the garden. But it's a, it's a long, you know, long train in Jewish mysticism that God made them kutnot or with an iron because until then they had had kutnot or with an olive. They had, they had luminous bodies. Yeah. And, um, and so... Like to to meditate on light, light the light that the menorah gives. The the light the menorah is a, a, a sort of an arboreal, a tree image, the tree of light. Moses saw one of those, 
Um, God is at one point in, in the end of the Torah called Shochnisne, the one who dwells in the in the bush. So you have this idea that the major, major, major experiences have these moments when there are trees of light, and we have a tree of light here in the Mishkan that they're described, and you have bodies of light. And so getting in touch with a kind of inner radiance is a pretty spiritual, spiritual thing. The world can be dark, especially as alluded to before, you know, before Thomas Edison. And um, the night is dark and full of terrors, they say in, in Game of Thrones. But there's there are ways to uh, to access that light. So I want to I want to just uh, thank you for the segue because uh, saying clothing clothed in light uh, obviously brings to mind a, a a large portion of the parsha, which is very difficult for us to relate to. Which is where you know I want I I I want to present the problem, which is here. Uh, several verses, you know, chapter in the in the whole parsha deals with the clothing of the high priest and the clothing of the priests, and um, you know we have to really engage our imaginations and and a little bit of technical skill in terms of interpretation, in terms of reading to to really try and conjure a picture of this in our minds, and then of course the reader is likely to say, oh, "Come on." I mean, what's the point of this? Why why do we need this this discussion? What is the what's the impact of this discussion? The, these, you know, it's 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 very difficult to gain access to. It's very difficult to to connect to and to derive any kind of spiritual meaning out of it. And I'm wondering where 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 we could go with this, and and what would be you know what would be the helper to people like ourselves or people in our congregations or in our communities, you know, who, who want to gain access to this, you know, help, help me figure this out. I want, you know, you're saying the Torah is meaningful. Well, I'm not sure I find the, the underwear of the high priest uh, meaningful. <laughs> okay. So I think that one way to look at the clothing that's described in the Parshat is it's not clothing in the way that we ordinarily think of it. It's a uniform. And it's the uniform that distinguishes the priest and the high priest from everyone else. So our teacher and colleague, Rabbi Neil Gilman, suggested in one of his books, in stating his own belief in, in bodily incarnation at the end of days, is that we can't imagine ourselves without our bodies. And that's why he thought, in the end of days, our bodies would be restored to us. But it raises the interesting question. When we imagine ourselves... Do we imagine ourselves naked or with clothes? And I think it's an important point because I kind of think that most of us imagine ourselves clothed, but not with clothes, meaning that we don't imagine ourselves naked, but we don't really differentiate the clothes that might cover our body. But what we have in the Parsha are specific things because people have to be able to recognize who the priest and the high priest is. And they can only do that by the clothes that they wear. Well, I want to. I just want to pick up on that because because I, I I find it very very interesting that when they are inaugurated as priest, the 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 instructions for that are given here, uh, it, and it's in chapter twenty nine. Okay, so uh, we get through the description of the clothing, and then then there's there's an ordination ceremony. Um, this is what you should do to sanctify them. And, and it's then verse 
5. Velakachta, I'm sorry, uh, verse 4. Bring Aaron and his sons close. To the entrance of the tent of meeting. And wash them. And I'm thinking, this is perfect. Okay, this is a connection to the whole idea of clothing, nakedness, and how you imagine yourself. Now, you know, I think there's one little, um, you know, asterisk I would put on your uh, comments, Barry, which is that, that you know, we have mirrors today. Mirrors are quite common. If you go to any gym or workout room, you know, that's there. You're, you're always looking at yourself. So you're always looking at your body. All right. Assuming that you're clothed when you do the workout, okay? And part part of the experience is I look at my body, I see what, and, and I have an idealized view of my body, that my body is going to be muscular, thinner, whatever. And um, uh, and so we, we do have ideas of the body and ideas of nakedness, I guess. But here it it is... I'm, I'm, it doesn't say they're literally naked, but I am extrapolating and saying, Verachatsta. Okay, so how is he going to wash them? Is he going to wash them with their clothes on, or is he going to wash them naked? And and so I'm, I'm literally placing Aaron and his sons in the front of the Ohamoed. I'm taking off their clothes, and I'm either dunking them in a vat, or spritzing water on them, or pouring water on them. I don't, you know, I'm I'm not going to go beyond that in terms of imagination as how how they're washed, okay? But there's some liquid and there's some body here, and and what would that mean? Well, I think that I mean, you, you said a vat, okay? And this story is happening, or to the extent that this is a narrative, I mean, it's a description of or a pit. Descript a pit. There's a description of you know uh, uh, to the extent that there is a real story here. It's 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 the traveling tabernacle in Moses' era in the in the in the desert. But uh, you know these these stories are very closely connected as prefiguring of the temple that Solomon will later build. Right. So so we're reading about the Mishkan, but I think that most readers, um, you know, throughout history or ancient times or whatever would have correlated it to the to the actual sanctuaries in their lives that, that were permanent. And there's mikvah oath. There's lots of mikvah oath and there's lots of dunking. So I, I think you may be making a little too much out of this because it's not, yes, I think that there's a moment of nakedness. I don't think that that this means that in the eyes of 600,000 foot soldiers from Israel, they're, they're all naked. I think it means... Why that, not? Why not? Uh... <laughs> because it would be weird. <laughs> well, because of if we jump ahead to Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, and the literal description of incest is to uncover nakedness. And right. that's a bad thing. And, and so I, I don't know way. that we can think that nakedness itself is considered good in the public sphere. Also, so, by I, the way, you know, it says in the in the Mishnah Siam. Um, if I can find exactly that verse, uh, when when they're when they're given the uh, michnasayim to wear, um, it's vehayu al Aaron v'al bnei al banav bivoam el ohel moed o begishtam el amizbeach lesharet bakodesh. I'm sorry, the, the verse before that. Asalem michnasay bad lechasod basar erva. 
they're supposed to cover um, their nakedness, the, the 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 genitals. Okay, which which means it's not it's not like it's nuclear if they remain unclothed. It's that the their priestly role um, should be wearing the the garments, which as we I don't know if we said it since recording, but we've talked about it, and we will come to it again. The whole point of the spectacular clothing that they have is lechavod ulatifarat. It's it's for glory and adornment and beauty, and so they are going to have to take it off for sometimes because they're going to have to dunk in the mikvah, as we know from the Abu Da service on Yom Kippur and the especially the most popular rendition of the Abu Da service in the entire history of the Jewish people, Yishai Ribo. Ribo. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, he goes down, he immerses, he comes up, he dries off. And so they do dry off, but I don't think that they imagine that is a public display of that. I think there's probably oh, a so I'm just going to push it a little, I'll try one more time, which is, why not? And and the question, why not, considering that people don't have photography there, they don't record and they don't engrave the body in, in any kind of accessible format, and it's a it's a fleeting format, and I don't want to say it as in a, in a in a way of a kind of like a, a fetish here, but but the idea that that you know we are publicly demonstrating the nakedness of Aaron and his sons, so that we're going to move them from a state of their pre their pre anointed pre ordained pre sanctified state, give them a kind of symbolic rebirth. Through a public washing or a, a washing that is visible to people who are around there, namely Moses. I mean, it's bad enough that Moses has to do this, okay? All right. And and then and then and then they put the clothing on him. And I, I go again to this idea that the 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 same thing happens in reverse when Aaron dies. When Aaron dies, we go to Bamidbar, we go to uh Parshat Chukat in the death of Aaron's. Where, where by a shit, they strip Aaron of the clothing and they place the clothing on Elazar. That you can't get more symbolic than that. He loses the 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 vestments, and Elazar is invested. And what is he standing there in his gutkas? He's standing there, he's naked. He's no, naked. standing in and, yours. And, no, I think wait, 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 wait. and then and then he goes and he dies, okay? And he dies. I think he dies naked. Sorry. Okay. Well, I would like to suggest is there's a value in taking an anthropological approach to the text. And I think that one of the things that we can say is that all animals, including human beings, are bounded physically by their bodies. That the body establishes the limits of our being. But what distinguishes human beings from animals is that human beings wear clothes. And that part of our humanity, our being human, is wearing clothes. And that's why I think your eloquence notwithstanding, the nakedness is not something that would be prized even in the Bible because by definition, again, following my anthropological reading, human beings require clothes. I think at a certain ground zero of human of humanness, there's nakedness. And that's okay, what's, so what's being touched so here. Go ahead. So the one thing that basically I'm, on Barry's side about this, I think that the <laughs> point is the point is that um, the Kohen, the Kohanim generally, the Kohen Gadol in particular, are 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 invested 
with the spectacular trappings of their office, Lechavod Tifaret. All right, okay. For for um, you know dignity and beauty, and and exposing them would be culturally a uh, a, a denigration. And I want to just point this out in one other way: is the end of Parshat. This is a little a couple of mitzvot at the end of Parshat Yitro, after uh, the great story of Revelation. There's a, a couple of mitzvah sprinkled there before we get to the covenant code in Mishpatim. And one of them is, you know, that the Kohen, the Kohanim have to have like a ramp up the, to get to the Mizbeach so that they don't expose their uh, genitals to the stones. Now, maybe that means um, that the Michnasayim that we have here in, in this parsha which are which is underwear, that they're not wearing them. And somehow the Kohanim were imagined back there in, in, in 20 um, or 21, whatever that is, right. are, are not are somehow not wearing undergarments. And therefore, if they took big, long strides, they would be exposing their, their genitals to the stones. Uh, but basically what I think it means is, uh, it could mean that, but I, basically what I think it means is that, in fact, it would be, I'm going to say this with a little humor. It would be like a massive insult to be prancing around naked. Okay, I, I agree and, with you. But now, but I'm going to give you one thing on your side of the ledger here. Okay, thank you. Which is which I which I emerges from the way you said it and in, in great eloquence. Um, is there some way in which the Kohen is Adam Harishon, is the first oh, human being? Nice. So nice. so if if you know. Um, a newly perfected human being, and, and a coin is supposed to be a perfect symbol of humanity, um, uh, is, is em emerges, then maybe we go through a process analogous to the one that, that Adam Harishon goes through from innocence and nakedness to ultimate clothing. Uh, as I alluded before with the, the, the garments of light and the garments of skin, there's, this is one of my favorite passages in the Tanakh. It's a crazy passage, Ezekiel 28, tells a kind of a fallen angel story. And the fallen angel is the king of Tyre, Tzor, the city in Lebanon today. And he was in the garden and he was perfect, but he grew, grew arrogant and he was expelled from the garden. And the body of the king of Tzor in Ezekiel 28 is described, it's not, it's not exactly the same, but it parallels the gemstones in the breastplate of the high priest, which would mean that somehow... The the Kohen who wears these this this um, you know stone he wears these this breastplate uh, um, sort of a you know whatever you call it there the Choshen Mishpat which is made of gemstones it's as if his body is not a normal human body it's a body made of precious stones and some of you may know that there's a, a famous Nachman of Breslov story um, the the boy who's the boy whose body is all gemstones. Um, and so you have this image of, of, of a kind of supernatural or preternatural per perfection. And so maybe if the Kohen Gadol is supposed to be the primeval Adam, then maybe they're actually, I, I could I could see where nakedness would, would have to be a okay. part of that. So, so you, you both helped me a lot because, as I say, I, I'm looking for the story here. I'm looking for the story beyond just the, the these um, beautiful descriptions of of. Uh, what materials are being used, how they're being used, what the measurements are, what the implements are, what the different things are. 
and I want I want a story that relates to me, and I want a, a story that relates to uh, the past, and I want a story that relates to an ideal. And what you're saying here is that hovering in these descriptions is a drama, the drama of of excellence, chavodu tifaret. Which I mean, just give us a good translation of lechavod uletifaret. I love the words we say. What would you say, lechavod uletifaret, Jeremy? For grandeur and beauty. Grandeur and beauty. So earlier, I think Jeremy, you used the phrase glory and adornment, mm-hmm. which I think also works. So, so the idea that these are accessible in the religious experience, and they're they. You know, and, and I have to add as a, a footnote, the phrase appears, of course, in the in the bracha for the haftarah, the after the haftarah, lechavod uletifaret, and it's also woven into the the ceremonial um, uh, phrase of lighting the torches on on Yom Atzmaut in Israel. The you know when when they have honored people light torches uh, for Israel's birthday anniversary. And they say, "Lichvod midinat uletiferet midinat Israel." I'm, I'm doing this for the glory and for the beauty to beautify Israel. And I think there's a very powerful idea that the the coin wears this. And so we get, you know, we're, we're, we've gone from light, the internal light, to this this idea that there's an external here, also. And there's a story of moving, I guess, from the inside to the outside and from the outside to the inside. I'm not sure what to make of it. All right, so I'll tell you what to make of it. Go ahead. I I think that we need to recognize, first of all, sprinkled through the Parsha are several psukim, which um, speak about God being present in one form or another before the people. And it gives us a context for the clothing because the purpose of the clothing is to bring God into our world. It's not to keep God separate somehow or to focus on the Kohen and its clothing without contemplating what the function of the Kohen is, which is to bring God's presence into the world. I like very much what you said about looking for the story. And we have to recognize that we're a little further down the road than our ancestors. And so we have a different story. We like to celebrate and go back and investigate the past. But sometimes we have to recognize that we've moved past the past, we're further down the road, and we need a new story because our ancestor's story doesn't quite work for us anymore. That's but we, we totally get the, the the specialness of the uniform. I was talking with one of my congregants who recently became a judge, and and the whole robing thing um, is quite, quite powerful. And we can totally get, I mean, you know... Elliot, if you if you laced on the skates and got to wear the Montreal Canadiens uniform, you would feel kavodu tifaret. Absolutely, and that's a great way to end this and bring it there. So it is about kavodu tifaret, and there's a great story here. And this was a great conversation, and we want to thank the people watching and listening to us. Thank you for your comments. Thank you for being such loyal loyal fans of this. You know, two weeks ago we had over 250 views, almost 300 views. Of the of the of the the show on different formats, I don't know if that's a record. You know, I we've been doing this close to four years, so we've had thousands of views. We're so proud of ourselves. You know something? Somebody was in shul yesterday. Yeah, um, a high school junior, 
and his bar mitzvah was on Truma four years ago, and it's the last one before the pandemic. Wow. And, and I, I said to him, I, he, I didn't remember saying this, but he, he said that I, that I said that I told people to not shake hands that day, but to do fist bumps. And, uh, and look where we are now. Where we are now, beyond that. Well, thank you all. And we're gonna, it's early in the week. We'll put it out. We wish you all a good week and then a beautiful Shabbat. And we'll see you next week on the next edition of Parchment. Shabbat Shalom.